I was so thankful a minute ago that Mr. Rios, in his prayer, prayed for our missionaries tonight. If you're fairly new with us and don't understand sort of our driving ethos, one of the, the highest priorities has been, always will be, is our deep commitment to foreign missions, to world missions. And in that sense, we just sent out over the last few weeks a couple of our most beloved missionaries, uh, Mark and Jane Kuo to Taiwan. I've been corresponding with them even in the last couple of days and their family, and we just sent out this last week, Bertie and Jenny Kona and their family, back to Albania. But in case you're feeling lonely for missionaries, there are more coming in the door. We will have Jay and Sumter Brantley and their children. There are missionaries to the Samburu people in eastern Africa. They will be in our midst for a few days. And then Peter and Erica Zabo are our missionaries in Hungary, and their whole family, all three of their children, and, and um, they will be here. And one of the things that I would remind you of is we're deeply committed, not just in word, but we give hundreds of thousands of dollars every year you do by your faithful and generous and and, uh, considered giving to missions. And even on Wednesday night, we'll certainly do so this coming Wednesday night, the focus of our prayer meeting, as it generally is, is on world missions. And so we hope that you will join us and look forward to uh, those times when we have some more of our missionaries in town. By the way, I hadn't yet said this, but if you would want to host either the Brantleys or especially the Zabos for a meal and expose your children to uh, godly believers and ministers from other parts of the world, come see me after the service and I can get you signed up for that. Our subject, Joshua, was born a slave. As his whole nation, Israel, was in bondage, Moses comes out of the desert to deliver them. The Lord sends plagues on the cruel, oppressive Egyptians. And the Lord then does miracles of deliverance for Israel at the Red Sea. Then, after delivering them and crushing their enemies, the Lord gathers Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, where he gives them the moral law. Israel then comes as a delivered, a saved, a redeemed nation to the southern border of the Promised Land. And perhaps the saddest one of the saddest moments in Israel's history, they stall. They rebel at Kadesh Barnea on the southern border of Canaan. And the Lord, in justice, in wrath, consigns that generation of Israelites to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and everyone over the age of 20 to die. Moses also dies. And after proper mourning, we see the the commissioning and installation of Joshua as the political, military, spiritual leader of all Israel. He's 80 years old. I want to keep reminding you of that. He's 80 years old, but he's not sitting in an easy chair. Joshua and the nation are just now, we are told in our text in Joshua 1, three days away from being able to do what they've waited 40 years to do. They'll soon cross the Jordan River enter into the promised land, and the battle to subjugate the Canaanites will be on. Our text tonight is is a rich text, spans several decades, teaches us much about redemptive history and faithfulness to vows over a generation. And it will take, I will dare say, because this, our text, especially understanding the background, moves you back and forth from one context to another. It will take your most careful concentration and undivided spiritual attention and open Bible and open hymnal. 
And so that hymnal you just put away in the rack, you'll want to take it out and have it at the ready because not only will you need your Bible open, you'll need your hymnal open. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. Our Father, we confess that we prefer the words and productions of men to your holy and perfect word. But now, arrest our thoughts. Turn our attention away from that which is trivial to that which is lasting and true and weighty. The psalmist said that he hungered and thirsted for your word. Give us that same passion tonight to hear you speak to us by your word. Correct our errors and teach us truth. Mature us by this word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope you're looking at Joshua chapter 1, and I want to begin sort of slowly by pointing out the historical, geographical, chronological context. Now, the geographic context is this. Israel has been here before. Well, not here exactly. Because the last time they were standing at the border of the promised land, they were at Kadesh Barnea. We saw this in Numbers 13 and 14. They were poised to enter Canaan from the south. Now, as we open our text, they're on the eastern border of Canaan. It's taken them 40 years of wandering, but that's where they've ended up. They're on the eastern border of Canaan, and the eastern border is the Jordan River. In order to come into Canaan, they will have to cross the Jordan River, which, by the way, at this moment, is at flood stage in the text. And then there's a, a historical, chronological aspect of the text you should know. Who's standing there that day with Joshua? Well, all the generation that rebelled at Kadesh Barnea 40 years ago, who were 20 or older, are all dead, every single one of them. They're all buried under the sands of the howling wilderness. And standing next to Joshua, standing all around him this day, are the children. The sons and daughters and grandchildren of those rebels. The children who were under 20 when their parents rebelled or they were born in the wilderness. And they had heard their parents bewail over and over again their poor choices. Their parents had said to them, we blew it. There's no hope for us. But when you get the chance, be strong and courageous. Don't apostatize like we did. So there is, you need to get the chronology down of this. There is not one person, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, not one person over the age of 59, who are both 80. A whole generation is gone. Joshua is looking at people who are 59 and younger. And then you need to consider as well what has happened with the passage of time. This is the generation that has been wandering aimlessly for 40 years outside of Canaan. Now let me ask you, just so you can have a, a sense of the passage of time. Where were you 40 years ago? What were you doing in the spring of 1983? That's a lot of water under the bridge. Ronald Reagan was president. There was no such thing as a cell phone. The Dodgers actually had a good baseball team. And this is how long it had been for Joshua. He'd been biding his time, maturing. And he is a phenomenally prime example of how God prepares a man and how long it will take. There are senior citizens, men and women in this room tonight, that you think you are done. But the Lord has only been preparing you to use you greatly. Don't be impatient with the Lord's timing. Of course, the primary aspect of someone who had to wait was the Lord Jesus. Was he sinlessly perfect at 12, at 20, at 25? Yes, but he had to wait till 30. So lessons he had to learn. 
maturing that had to go on. And that's what's happened with Joshua and Caleb. They had to wait from 40 until 80, and now they're ready to lead. Now, I want you to look at our text. Look at verses 10 through 18, and we're going to notice just a few minor interpretive observations before we get to the two major points that are made in this text. The first is this. This is just a a simple interpretive observation. Look at your text at verse 11. God is cutting off supernatural supply. Look at what the Lord tells the people of Israel to prepare provisions for yourselves. To be fair, the supply of manna we find out in Joshua 5 doesn't cease for a while for a few days, perhaps weeks, the manna had been a gracious, supernatural provision for a place, the wilderness, where there was no food and no ability to cultivate it. But what the Lord is telling Joshua, he's teaching him about the right use of means. God is not going to drop drop manna into your backyard, so don't tempt the Lord. And very soon, the Lord was going to have his people in the promised land where they could grow, harvest, cultivate food. And so they need to get in the habit of, of making such plants, the, the normal way of provisions of planting, harvesting, weeding, all of that sort of thing. And so God is cutting off, about to cut off the supernatural supply. That's why he tells them to prepare provisions. And then another thing that you should recognize is when you look at Joshua chapter 1, no less than six times, look at them with me, verse 2, verse 3, Verse 6, verse 11, 13, and 15, the Lord says he's giving Israel the land. Notice that? Six times. 2, 3, 6, 11, 13, and 15. But this doesn't preclude strenuous effort on their part. God gives, but he uses means to appropriate his gifts. This is just like you and I with our salvation. Does the Lord give us the free gift of salvation? Yes, but he does so by the means of faith and repentance. God gives you the means whereby you can appropriate his free gift. And then there's a very subtle observation. Look at verse 11. The Lord tells Israel that in three days they're going to cross over this Jordan. Now, if you know anything about the Jordan and know what time of year it is, as I said a moment ago, it's flood stage. The Lord does not tell Israel to build boats. Even though the Jordan River at this moment is wide and swollen and running swiftly. He doesn't tell anyone to start building pontoon bridges. All he tells them to do is prepare provisions, food. I wonder what the Lord is going to do. Maybe he's going to do for them what he did for their parents at the Red Sea. And what we're going to see is, once again, the Lord astounds the nation of Israel, and glorifies himself in the way they will cross across the Jordan River. But one other cultural observation, one other observation before we get to the two major points of the text, I want you to notice something that our culture desperately needs to hear. There's a profound truth about gender and gender roles, and our culture right now has lost its mind on gender and gender roles. And if you state any biblical gender roles, you are said to be a something phobe. I don't know what that is. But once you notice in verse 14, when the Lord is giving instructions to these specific tribes, and we're going to see why these two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Look at verse 14. And this is a profound biblical observation. Your wives 
your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land which the, the land which Moses gave you on this side of the Jordan. But you shall pass before your brethren armed, all your mighty men of valor, and help them. Now what I want you to see is there is a distinct historic Christian consensus on this principle. And it comes from, it's not rooted in just some sort of airy idea. It's rooted in texts, in historical occasions like this one. Look carefully at verse 14. Who is told to stay home when there is a battle to be fought? Women and children. We believe in the role of men as protectors of men and women, not because we're cultural Victorians, but because God in his inspired word repeatedly tells us that these roles are to be normative. Our culture, as I said a moment ago, is in massive confusion and rebellion on gender issues. We treat girls like boys and boys like girls, and then we wonder why they're confused. Men have become feminized and women have become masculinized. Boys are intentionally, systematically being trained by academic curricula to be non-confrontational and soft. Men are being sold in appearance orientation. The tanning bed, the hair salon, the manicurist, and the hair color products. By the way, when our daughter Sarah was hitting that age when guys were showing up on our doorstep, Sarah and I were sitting in the living room, and I said, Sarah, just a, a few beginning premises. I said, any guy who comes to visit you who smells better than you do, I'll just shut the door. Any guy who comes to visit you who has spent more time on his hair than you have, I'll just shut the door. Any guy who comes to see you whose pants are tighter than yours, I'll just shut the door. But all of those things and many others are, are an orientation that's being told to young men. And every single element of that orientation is to make them effeminate. And let me remind you of the basic apologetic. If you're wondering, Carl, what is it you're trying to say? Look at verse 14. There is, there is a worldview at stake in verse 14. It is that men should be the protectors of women, that men should be strong. And so let me remind you, as I've done several times through the year, that God's intention for Christianity is to have a masculine feel. Let me give you 10 examples of that. And this all goes to interpret verse 14. Number one, God revealed himself in the Bible as king, not queen, father, not mother. Secondly, the second person of the eternal trinity is revealed as the son, not daughter. The third, the, the father and the son create men and women in their image and give them the name man, the name of the male. The fourth premise, all the priests that God appoints in the Old Testament, every single one, every last one, are men. Fifth, when God takes flesh and comes into the world, he comes to be a man. How would an effeminate Messiah have been able to handpick 12 other men who were manly, rough fishermen and actually expect them to leave everything and give their lives to worshiping this God-man if he were an effeminate man? Jesus came in the form of a man, a man who tossed temple tables and one who survived in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights resisting Satan's temptations. 
Sixth, and you see we're building a consensus. We're building a worldview here. Sixth, he chose, this Jesus, a man, chose 12 men to be his apostles. Seventh, the apostles turned around and appointed the elders of the churches they planted to be men. And eighth, when it came to marriage, they consistently unified fashion, taught that the husband should be the head of their home. Nine, there aren't any indication throughout the Bible of any godly male figure. Not one. You can search from Genesis to Revelation. Not one indication of a godly man being effeminate. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that the homosexual and the effeminate will not inherit the kingdom of God. We know that God consistently used men who displayed true masculinity. You have David who slayed ten thousands in battle. Samson, who killed a lion with his bare hands. The idea of one of them being effeminate is completely absurd. The tenth, God is repeatedly described in the Bible, the most glorious picture we have is in Revelation 19, as a triumphing warrior. And so when you look at verse 14 of our text, this is just a cultural observation. This text is in keeping with the whole worldview of the Bible of what men are to be and do. And what we have them being and doing right here, look at verse 14. Don't run away from this text. What you have them being and doing is the protectors of women and children. And so, guys, this takes a million forms in our day. It includes opening doors for women. It means if you're walking on the sidewalk, men, you walk closest to the street, so you'll be the one who gets run over, not your wife. And a hundred other forms because men are to protect. Women are to be protected. Parents, remember, the culture is trying to make your sons soft and your daughters hard. Your task as a parent is to ensure your sons are hard and strong. Physically, certainly, but also emotionally strong. Your job is to raise sons who don't collapse in a puddle when adversity and trials come. Joshua lived in a culture. Do you see it right here in verse 14? Joshua lived in a culture where gender roles were clear. Women and children were to be protected. Men were the protectors. Now, you may be looking at our text, verses 10 through 18, and saying, Carl, there's not really much here. It looks like everybody's just packing and getting ready to enter the land. Well, there are two principal texts. All of what I've said so far, that's just warm-up. And so what I want you to see, there are two fundamental points to grasp. First, the points of submission and authority. And second, the unity of the people of God. Now, when I say authority and submission, I want you to recognize there is a command structure to the Bible. This follows hard on the heels of what masculinity is about. The world teaches egalitarianism, but the scripture doesn't. Look, for example, at verse 10. Joshua talks to the officers of the people, we are told, and he gives them a command. Now notice the hierarchy that takes place. Look at verse 10. Joshua commands. That's hierarchy language, authority language. He commands the officers of the people. Then look what he tells them to do in verse 11. They are to pass through the camp and command the people. So we see a command structure among the people of God. 
Now, nothing changes, by the way, in the, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, kinder, gentler new covenant. Because Paul tells Pastor Titus in Titus 2 <coughs> to exhort and rebuke with all authority. Now, if you're the type who really starts to, your back starts to just do like this when you hear any words about commands and authority, I want to remind you what our, what our public theology, this is why you need your hymnal right now. Look at page 956, and I want you to see what all our elders and deacons subscribe to, all your ministers subscribe to, in fact, what every Presbyterian since 1647 has subscribed to. This idea of submission and authority, it is deeply part of God's order. Look on page 956 at questions 126 and 127 of our larger catechism. Again, this is what all our officers subscribe to. What is the general scope of the fifth commandment? The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. Now look at this phrase. I can't tell you how many times I've had a discussion about larger catechism 127 and people have run off screaming into the night because of these two words, inferiors and superiors. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their correction, and on and on. And what we recognize, our larger catechism is recognizing something profound about the fifth commandment, that the Bible teaches a structure of obedience to authorities. It begins with parents. And I will tell you, parents, if your children don't learn to obey you at home, they will learn to obey, but it will be a civil magistrate. It'll be a judge or a police officer. And so it's good that they learn to obey the first superiors, the ones that God has placed in their home. Now, notice what Joshua commands. Look at verse 13. He commands, he gives this imperative in verse 13. Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. And so what Joshua is saying, his authority is derived. It's derived from the word. And I want you to notice, look at verses 16 through 18 of our text. Notice the submission of the godly. Isn't it interesting that there's not a, a petition, there's not a recall ballot, there's not a rebellion, aren't people walking around signs saying, overthrow Joshua, he's gotten too bossy. Look at verses 16 and following. All that you command us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. And what I'm going to point out in just a moment is this generation may be Israel's finest generation. And a lot of the reason why they are is because they're manly, they're masculine, and because they are quick to understand authority and obey it. Look at verse 18. They even pledge obedience and agree the death penalty should fall on any rebels or naysayers. They are simply echoing what Moses has been teaching already. The people of Israel, notice verse 18, they exhort Joshua. This is the exhortation coming back from the nation to be strong and courageous, which Moses had said in Deuteronomy 31, the Lord had said, and so these people are simply reminding Joshua of the word of God. But then there's a second point you should see. All of that to say the Lord teaches a hierarchy of submission and authority. Well, there's a case study that's going on. 
Because what you see in our text, when, when Mr. Rios read it a moment ago, you probably said, uh, verse 12, what's going on with the Reubenites, Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh there in verse 12? And why is Joshua speaking to them and saying, remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you? This is a profound study in the unity of the people of God. Now is where you're going to really need to roll up your sleeves and go to work with me in the text. Keep one finger here and look back at Numbers 32. Because what is happening here, it's a reference to a historical event that happened. Look at Numbers 32. <clears throat> Numbers 32. During the 40 years of wandering, two tribes, actually two and a half tribes, Reuben and Gad, and we'll find out later the, the half tribe of Manasseh, they pick up large herds of livestock. And while they're east of the Jordan River, they say, you know, this land over here, east of the Jordan, is great land for livestock. There's good grass. There's plenty of water. <clears throat> I don't think the promised land can be better than this. Let's just see if we can plant our roots here. Let's go to Moses and skip the promised land. That's the request. Now, they're going to come and make it in Numbers 32. The representatives from these three tribes, Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they're going to come, and they're going to make this formal proposal. Moses, uh, we think you would love this idea. If two and a half tribes want to veer off, that just leaves more land in the promised land for the remaining nine and a half tribes. What's not to like? Moses says that it's two and a half tribes less to worry about. Y'all go on. We'll be fine over here on this side of the Jordan. Our crops will have plenty of grass and water. We'll send letters. It'll be great. Look at what we are told in verses 1 through 5. The children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of God, the children of Reuben, came and spoke to Moses to Eliezer, the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, and they list the places, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore they said, if we found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over the Jordan. And so there's the request. They're saying, we want out. We want to break the bonds of the people of God. After all we've been through, we've been, we were delivered out of Egypt together, we crossed the Red Sea together, we've been given the law together. It's been nice knowing you. We want to stay over here on this side of the Jordan because this land looks really good. We're not so sure that the promised land could be any better. We don't want to fight with you, don't want to argue. We just want to stay here because we know what's going to happen. When we cross the Jordan, we're going to have to fight. And we'd rather just be peaceful shepherds and farmers over here. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, that Moses would love this request. Look at verses 6 in Numbers 32 and following. Moses' immediate response is, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? In other words, he's going to, what he's going to say is, Do you guys want another Kadesh Barnea? His first response, when you look at verse 6, is the unity of the body. His response is, you think you fellows are going to stay on this side of the Jordan and tend sheep and cattle while we're fighting Canaanites to the death? I don't think so. 
And then he states a principle that many in this room still have never learned. I hope you learn it tonight. I hope the Holy Spirit presses it home to your heart tonight. Look carefully at verse 7. Moses says, Why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? And what he's teaching is this. Disunity, the fracturing of the fragile unity of the people of God, always brings discouragement. Look at his word in verse 7. Why are you asking this? This will discourage the people of God. And when somebody says to you, let me just give you a practical example. When somebody comes up to you and says, you know, I'm not really on board with what's happening here at Woodruff Road. That discourages the whole body. You want a playbook or a manual for how to discourage God's people? Pull in the opposite direction. It might be worship. It might be government. It might be doctrine. But look at verse 7. This is what happens every time. You discourage the faithful people of God. Now then Moses goes on. He's just getting warmed up. Look at verse 8 of his answer. Moses goes on to say, Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. And what Moses now is saying is, You guys are a brood of sinful men who have risen in your father's place, and this is generational sin now. You're acting just like your dad. You learned it well from them. And so Moses says, we are not falling for that again. If you two tribes, two and a half tribes, stay over here, you're going to split the people of God. So Moses vetoes their plan and says, no, you have to come with us. So notice how dogged these people are. They come back and they make another offer. Look at verse 16. And here's their offer. Moses will build cities and corrals over here on the east side of the Jordan, but all our men will arm and march at the front of the troops. <clears throat> Look what they say in verse 17. We ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel. In other words, Moses, we're not trying to get out of military service. Let us build some corrals and let us build our homes, but we will come with you. Stick us in the front line. We'll march at the front. And so then look at verses 16 to 19. They make a sacred pledge in verses 16 to 19 to fight until all the tribes are settled in the promised land. They're saying, Moses, just let us have our territory here, but we will go and fight with you. So now follow the track down, Numbers 32 to verses 20 through 24. Moses gives a very subdued consent including a common text and a text that is often horribly misused. Quick lesson in hermeneutics here. Pick up the narrative in verse 20. Moses said to them, If you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he's driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Now, you know what I want to point out. Look at verse 23. I bet you've heard sermons on this text before. And it usually goes like this. Well, if you're doing something that you think is sneaky in the dark, in the closet, and, and be sure your sin will find you out. That's not what Moses is saying. Look carefully at the context. What Moses is saying 
is, okay, I'm going to let you stay and live east of the Jordan. But when the day comes for us, Joshua 1, when the day comes for us to invade Canaan and fight, you better get up and go with us. You better not shatter the military unity of the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses is not talking about sins of commission, but sins of omission. He's talking about the possibility that when it comes time to go to battle, those two and a half tribes will say, "Uh, bad time of year, it's harvest time or it's planting time. The sin of omission would be the failure to follow through on this promise and fight with your brothers. And so what Moses is saying is, guys, I'm going to let you do this. But you better do what you promised. When the day comes, you better come and be in the front ranks. And you better fight with us until the promised land has been won. And then look at Moses' punchline in verse 24. He says, build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep. And do what has proceeded out of your mouth. He's telling them to be men of their word. Now, look back. All that's background for Joshua chapter 1. Look at Joshua 1. So what we see in verses 12 and following is now Joshua is saying to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Joshua is saying, guys, remember the promise you made? Time to pay up. Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, and then he reminds them, it's, it's time now. So for those of you who are detail-oriented, it's interesting, in the Numbers text, and you say, hey, where the, where's the half-tribe of Manasseh? They actually show up a little bit later. But Joshua doesn't forget the incident. And so now, see it there in Joshua 1, he says to Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, you've promised, now it's time to perform. Even though you two and a half tribes are settled and have rest, look at how it's spoken of in verse 13 and 15. The Lord is giving you rest, giving you this lamb. You have to get up and go fight with Israel or you'll have no rest and will force you to go. And we have the delight of seeing something very rare. I want you to look at the last part of Joshua 1 because it's rare. It's rare in Scripture. It's even rarer in our lives. In verses 12 through 15, Joshua reminds these two and a half tribes of their promise. They don't say when Joshua reminds them on that day, Promise? I don't remember making a promise. They're men of their word. And so look what they say in verse 16. They say, Everything that you command, we do. And whatever, wherever you send us, we will go. In fact, they say, the statement in verse 18 about the death penalty is, if anybody rebels against you, Joshua, we, the two and a half tribes, we will execute the death penalty on it. I want you to slow down and gaze in wonder at verses 12 through 18. These men put us to shame. How often do we see men and women make promises, whether it be marriage vows, baptismal vows, church membership vows, and kick them to the curb the minute they get uncomfortable? These men are going to keep their word at great cost. Some of them will die on the battlefields of Canaan keeping their promise. And they pray. Look at them in verse 17. They pray for Joshua The Lord be with you as he was with Moses. Uh, Joshua, we know the principle. As go the leaders, so go the nation. So we want you to walk with God, and therefore we will be blessed by it. But we're still at the promising phase. I want you to, to, to follow this promise all the way out. In Numbers 32, we have 
their, their promise, their initial promise. We, we just want to stay on this side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan. We promise when it comes time to fight, we'll do it. Now in Joshua 1, Joshua says, it's time. Are you ready? I'm cashing in that chip. You said you'd get at the front of the line. Here they are marching to the front of the line. But do they actually follow through? Look at Joshua 4. Joshua chapter 4. Verse 12 and 13. The men of Reuben, the men of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, crossed over armed before the children of Israel. In other words, at the front of the lines. As, it, as Moses had spoken to them, about 40,000 prepared for war, crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. And what we see is they did it. They left their comfortable homes that they'd built on the east side of the Jordan. They left their corrals, their sheep pens, and they marched to the head of the line and they fought with the other nine and a half tribes. This is rare. You know this is rare. You should mark this text with a highlighter and make a margin note and say, someone promised to do something and did it. They're even the ones who set up in Joshua 1.18 the death penalty for anyone who disobeys leaders. How do we apply this text? You know that every word of scripture is profitable. This isn't just a historical narrative, although it certainly is a completely inerrant historical narrative. But we're looking for what is profitable because Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for at least four strands of application. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so the first application we are to take on is the crucial importance of obedience to God-ordained leaders. We live in the question authority generation and need to regularly be reminded that Adam's rebellion to his superior brought death. And that Jesus saw obedience to his authority, the Father, as crucial. Do you remember what he said in John chapter 8? I always do the things that please my Father. Or the mandate from Hebrews 13, obey your leaders and submit to them. We have forgotten all of these fifth commandment relationships, inferiors and superiors. And so what this text reminds us again is there's a biblical worldview and a biblical order. And God always rules his people through leaders that we should submit to. In our case, it's our elders. The second application is the necessity of maintaining unity with God's people. Not just unity and fellowship with God. You'll have plenty of people today who'll say, Carl, I'm, I'm really good with the whole vertical relationship. Me and God, union with Christ, pray in the word every day. What about maintaining unity with God's people? Well, I've been at six different churches in the last seven months. And I move around. I just can't seem to get along with anybody. Because nobody will hold to my view of worship and my view of government the way they should. What we learn in this text is Israel cannot say, it's made very clear, cannot say, we two and a half tribes will sit over here east of the Jordan and fellowship with God, but we'll be divided from his people. That is outlawed and forbidden. Moses says, no, you won't. You can't have fellowship with God if you're not in fellowship with his people, not fighting the battles with his people. 
If they didn't go forward in solidarity with the other nine and a half tribes, they would have been apostate. And this teaches us, you can't be in fellowship with God, but not with his people. Division is just worldliness. The world is really good at that. But where the Holy Spirit is, he keeps God's people in unity. That's why Paul writes, speaking about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 4, that we are to be diligent, diligent to preserve the unity of the body in the bond of peace. That's what Moses is doing when he says, no, you're not going to split off from us. You're going to come with us. We must go together, even though it will mean bloody battlefields, even though it will mean people will die. We must go together. Tonight, are you marching forward with God's people? Are you standing outside of his people? Whether in the old covenant or the new, the Lord's plan has always been to have one unified people doing battle under his banner for his glory. Let's pray together. Our sovereign Lord, give us a heart to humbly submit to your ordained leaders as Israel did with Joshua. And give us a heart to carefully maintain.